Welcome to Holistic History, The Quest for King Arthur. My name is Jim Frost. Let me begin by explaining the idea behind holistic history and then get into an example of how it works by tackling one of the most famous debates in Western history, the debate over King Arthur. The holistic approach is based upon the premise that human societies are complex and made up of interconnected factors. This is hardly a new idea. In fact, to many people it would appear to be self-evident. The problem is this idea is often ignored in the study of history, especially ancient history. For example, I am familiar with dozens of books that deal with Arthurian Britain and the Arthurian debate. Virtually every single author said that we must stick to the documentation. The holistic approach rejects that. It uses documentation, but also archaeology and deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning, which is the use of other examples of the same kind of thing to try to figure out how things happen if there is no written explanation. I did not consciously create this approach. I just did it. The reason I picked the Arthurian debate to illustrate the technique is because that is how I became aware that I was studying history differently from other people. I was studying the collapse of the Western Roman Empire and the way in which it was divided up. When I came to Britain, I found that I had serious problems with the accepted reconstruction of the course of events of the 5th century. This, of course, is the time period of King Arthur. Everyone goes along with the accepted reconstruction and says that the problem is with the Arthurian material. I believe it is actually the other way around. There are some problems with the Arthurian material, but it's basically all right. It's the accepted reconstruction that's all wrong. So what I intend to do is present my reconstruction. For this first episode, I will give a synopsis of what I think is the most important problem and introduce my solution to the Arthurian debate. Let me explain the situation for those of you who may not be familiar with Britain in that time period. We are not talking about the English. The ancient Britons were the Welsh. Their language and culture used to be spread throughout all of what is now England and southern Scotland and Brittany in northwestern France, but we don't have to worry about Brittany. Britain became independent of the Roman Empire in 410, and the Britons were in very serious trouble militarily speaking. The Irish had invaded from the west back in the days when Britain was still in the Roman Empire and conquered three colonies. A people called the Picts were raiding them out of the highlands in the north, and the Anglo-Saxons began invading in the east. The Anglo-Saxons were Germanic tribes that became the English. They conquered a bit of territory, got stopped. Conquered a bit more territory, got stopped again. It took them over 400 years to conquer England. They imposed their language and culture on the native population in a process called cultural assimilation. According to the accepted reconstruction, the Britons were politically divided into different kingdoms, and a king who could exert authority over at least some of the other kings would be what historians call a high king. And they only had a high king when one could actually dominate others. So there were times when there was no high king. I do not believe that is the political system that they had, but I am going to pretend that I do for the time being, and I will talk about their political system in a later episode. The traditional material tells us that they had three of these rulers in the 5th century. Vortigern, Ambrosius Aurelianus, Arthur, with Arthur reigning in the 490s and the early 500s. We have one contemporary source the ruin and conquest of Britain, written by a monk named Gildas sometime around the year 540. All of the other sources, such as the history of the Britons and the Cambrian Annals, were written hundreds of years later. Gildas's hero was Ambrosius Aurelianus, and the first historian I read said Ambrosius rescued the nation when he staged his coup and killed the tyrant Vortiger. And I immediately said to myself, Benito Mussolini claimed to be rescuing the nation when he staged his coup and overthrew the Italian democracy. In my opinion, no one ever rescued a nation by staging a coup. I argue that people who stage coups do not have popular support because someone with popular support would stage a rebellion. This conclusion is supported by the fact that in this case, the coup was launched after most of Vortigern's supporters had been massacred in ambush by the Anglo-Saxons. 
To me, that would indicate Ambrosius was too weak to challenge Vortigern directly. He had to wait until the Anglo-Saxons cleared a path for him. That would not have been rescuing the nation. That would have been taking advantage of an opportunity handed to him by somebody else. My impression was that Gildas is not reliable. He was capable of falsifying the historical record in order to support a particular political faction. I had no idea the can of worms I was opening up by reaching that conclusion. But it is the right conclusion. Although, as it turned out, it's right for the wrong reason. But I will explain that in a later episode. Without realizing it, I had also found the answer to the Arthurian debate. Everyone else on both sides of the debate says Arthur's name does not appear in reliable documentation. But the word documentation is plural. Arthur's name is only missing from this one specific document. Singular. Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is usually the right one. The simplest explanation is not that there is something wrong with all of the sources that mention Arthur, but that there is something wrong with the one source that doesn't. Gildas told us he was born the same year as the Siege of Mount Baden, better known as the Battle of Baden Hill. Other sources tell us that that was Arthur's greatest victory. Gildas had a golden opportunity to mention the king when he mentioned the battle, but he did not do that, and that is what everyone else concentrates on. But Gildas also said that Baden led to a period of peace. I have four different ways of making the case Arthur was real from that one passage. I am only going to talk about the one I considered to be the most important. It was not the Battle of Baden Hill that made Arthur the ones in future king. It was the Round Table. We are arguing over the origin of a figure who has a reputation for bringing order out of chaos, maintaining peace, and upholding justice. And right smack dab in the time period he said to have reigned, even Gildas himself admitted order was brought out of chaos. There was a period of peace. We can't directly verify the justice, but I think there is good reason to believe that was there as well. Everyone else is taking Arthur's popularity for granted, but it is actually highly unusual. Most legendary figures are nowhere near that popular. Even figures like Thor or Hercules or Heracles, to use the Greek, are not popular in themselves, but because they are part of a wider mythology that people know about. As for Beowulf or Cuchulain or Siegfried, most people have never heard of them at all. So we have to explain why Arthur is a household name. By definition, in order for a figure to become popular, that figure must catch on with the general population. Everyone else says stick to the documentation, but only a tiny fraction of the population was literate. That fraction was part of the ruling elite, which was a warrior class. But this was not Sparta. They did not have a militaristic society. Even the lowest estimates say that at least 80% of the population were farmers. Does anyone really believe farmers had the same values as the warrior class? The written sources emphasize warfare because the warrior class wanted to win glory through combat. They considered that to be the greatest thing a man could do. But to the general population, war was not glorious. It was a bunch of marauding thugs who came sweeping through the region pillaging, raping, and murdering. They wanted peace. Then there's justice. Monarchy was inherently corrupt. The system was rigged in favor of the nobility. Consider Robin Hood. The oldest written reference to him dates to the late 12th century, the time period he's said to have lived. Unfortunately, it is just a vague reference connecting the name to outlaws in general. There is no indication if he was real or a fictional character that was already popular. The first written Robin Hood stories did not appear until the mid-15th century. This means that the character was a figure of oral tradition for over 250 years before anyone wrote the stories down. This in turn means that characters do not have to be preserved in written sources. Robin is the only other legendary figure in the English-speaking world who has the same level of popularity as Arthur. Everything about Robin screams the people. 
which is consistent with my contention that the figure would have had to have catch on with the general population to achieve that level of popularity. Like Arthur, Robin was a champion of justice, because the people were the ones who needed justice. With Robin, it works whether he was real or fictional because he fits an archetype, the noble outlaw. Arthur does not fit an archetype. First of all, Arthur's reputation is more complex. He was a war hero, and a peacekeeper, and an upholder of justice. There isn't even an archetype of a peacekeeper. We are being told that Arthur was more significant than a mythic figure and more rare than a war hero. He was a good king who actually cared about the people. Unfortunately, I have run out of time. Next episode, I will talk more about what I think Gildas was really up to and present another method for making the case Arthur was real. This was episode one of Holistic History, The Quest for King Arthur. I hope that you will join me for episode two. Until then, this is Jim Frost, hoping you have a great day.